Well, good afternoon, everyone, once again. For those of you who are new to us, we have, uh, for the past uh, many months, been doing a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And outside of um, particularly holy seasons of the year, we are going through it consecutively. And for the past few weeks, we've been considering the, the parables in Matthew chapter 13. We're familiar with the parables, many of us, but I've been delighted to find new things as I looked at the parables and things that have surprised me. And I trust that you will uh, hear something from the Spirit of God this day as we consider again a parable which is uh, largely familiar. But let me back up and set the scene very briefly. Jesus has given five speeches. Jesus gives five speeches in the Gospel of Matthew, which I think rightly reflects the fact that he is the new Moses and that he is giving a new uh, commandment. He is enhancing the Old Testament law and disclosing its true foundation, its true purpose, because he is the Son of God and the author of those laws himself. So at the very beginning of our passage, when it says, he set before them another parable in verse 24. The word set before is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Moses setting before the children of Israel the laws. And so uh, it's clear that um, the parables are not just sort of friendly stories, homely stories, even stories that we might associate with children, but they are diligent biblical doctrine taught in the form of down-to-earth stories. In the parables, we learn of weeds and seeds, of farmers, of barns, of harvest, all kinds of down-to-earth things. This is consistent with the nature of the incarnation. God eternal has become a human being, and in Jesus Christ, we know and understand God in ways that resonate with us. Jesus, as it were, has come to earth fully human, fully divine, and he speaks our language. But surprise of surprises, we noticed last week that Jesus, in giving the parables in Matthew chapter 13, has two purposes. He's doing two things at the same time. On the one hand, he's giving instruction to his disciples about the nature of the kingdom. But on the other hand, He's being slightly coy and elusive to the crowds. And this constitutes what I believe is a shift. If you go back and look earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus tells parables, the message is dead simple. Do not, do not throw your pearls before swine. If your eye leads you astray and leads you to sin, then cut it out. Everybody gets the message. But we noticed last week, then, when we looked at the parable of the sower, that Jesus first tells the story, and he tells it in such a way that it's slightly oblique to the hearers. They hear a story, but they don't know what its meaning is. And then it was only later that Jesus revealed the true meaning of this parable to his disciples. And next week, I thought it was this week, but next week we're going to study uh, what seems at first instance to be quite a troubling passage. And so far, we've been skirting around it, but we're going to face it head on next week. In that 
in the interim between the telling of the parable of the sower last week and even in the interim in the telling of the parable of the sower and the weeds this week where i have the three dots before verse 36 jesus explains to his disciples that he has another purpose on the one hand he's explicating of kingdom teaching to his followers but on the other hand he is keeping the message of the parables secret from the crowds and next week we'll look at the reasons for that so as we found last week if we simply read the first part of the passage verses 24 to 30 um, we hear an interesting story that's provocative another word for parable in the gospels and particularly in the gospel of matthew and in particular in chapter 13 the word could be used in place of it riddle that jesus set before the people a riddle but before his followers it was um, explicit teaching on the nature of the kingdom of god so i want to read again and invite you to read with me as i uh, read um, my own translation which i work through during the week and it contains many um, um, interpretations which i think will find helpful he set before them another parable saying the kingdom of the heavens may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven he's talking about the kingdom that he has brought to earth and that in a way is yet to be fulfilled in earth jesus has brought heaven down to earth in a way in his person in his teaching in his ethics and we who are part of the church and we whose lives have been changed by jesus have tasted some of that new life that has come by putting our faith in Jesus. And here he says, it may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus in chapter seven said, the kingdom will be like this, but here he speaks about it in the present. And so he's talking about a situation that already arose in his day. And that was the situation of Jesus spreading the message of the word among his people but while in but we read in verse 25 but while the men were sleeping that is the workers his that is the sower's enemy came and interspersed darnels darnels are poisonous wheat like weeds they look exactly like wheat until they sprout and only then can you really tell them the difference and the the enemy did that and went away Verse 26, but when the grass sprung up and produced grain, that is wheat, then the darnels became plain as day. When the darnels begin to grow, they look exactly like wheat, as I said, but when they begin to sprout and show forth their blades, there's a little black shaft that appears in them. And once they begin to sprout and to blossom, as it were, only then can you tell the difference between them and the wheat. Verse 27, the bond servants of the housemaster approached him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How is it that it has darnels? You see, already in Jesus' day, as we know from the case of Judas Iscariot, there were those in his midst who belonged to the evil one. And so it's in the present tense again, how is it that it has darnels? Jesus responded to them, someone who was an enemy did this. And then the bondservants say to him, present tense, 
Um, it could be a particular convention. Uh, but again, I think the present tense is to be emphasized. Do you want us, therefore, to go and uh, gather them? But Jesus said, no, so that the, in gathering, no, so that in gathering the darnels, you avoid inter, inadvertently rooting up the wheat at the same time as them. And then Jesus gives his advice. Allow both to grow alongside each other until the harvest. But at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather first the weeds and bind them in bundles for burning, but assemble the wheat into my barn. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're new to, um, to uh, following Jesus, and if you're new to um, being part of the body of Christ, in other words, if you weren't brought up to know the scriptures and hadn't heard the story from a youth, you'd sort of say, okay, well, so some farmer's got problems with his field. I have a friend in the prairies of Alberta who has 40 sections of land, and I talked to him on the weekend. I thought, uh, nobody knows wheat like Merle Blair does, and he was harvesting it as we were speaking. And I said to him, have you got any weeds in your field this year? And he said, oh yeah, big time, major problem. He has a thing called ergot, uh, which is another kind of a poisonous species. And um, he's got that problem on his hands as we, as we speak. So it's something that farmers uh, are very familiar with. But we don't know the message or the meaning of the story unless you're one of the disciples. And so we get the message in verses 36 following. And you'll notice that Jesus removes himself from the crowds. And he goes into the house. And the house was a place in Jewish tradition, which was a place where scribes taught and where people were used to learning from the rabbi. So it's appropriate. The disciples are in the house where they get the inside word, as it were, on the meaning. And his disciples approached him, as did the workers, saying, make clear for us the parable of the darnels of the field. Now the concern here is with the darnels. They don't ask, the par ask, tell us the parable of the wheat and the darnels, but they're wanting to know what it is that um, we should think of these weeds. And so Jesus immediately, as a good teacher, uh, gives the disciples, who he wants to inform, the lexicon. And he says, okay, here's what equals what. In response, he said, the one sowing the seed is the son of man. Verse 38, and the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the darnels are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the consummation of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the darnel is gathered and burned with fire, so shall it be at the consummation of the age. The Son of Man will dispatch his angels, and they will extract from his kingdom all that trip up people so as to cause them to sin and all those who commit lawlessness. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then Jesus, who is a wise teacher, reminds us of the importance of paying slow and careful attention to the message of the scriptures. He said, if you've got ears, use them well because there are depths to the scriptures which the crowds uh, uh, were kept from and which the disciples are even admonished to chew upon and meditate upon as we saw 
in the case of Psalm 1, which we looked at also along with um, Matthew chapter 13. So what does this passage tell us today? Well, I have the, the nuts and bolts of the, uh, of the answer on page uh, 4. And I have it, and I'm going to spell it right out as carefully as I can, uh, to be as clear as I can. Why endure discouraging circumstances in the kingdom, that is the church at present, especially when so few come to faith and many in the church are duplicitous and downright evil? And the answer is, because in the end, God and his people win. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I've often thought how good it would be and how much easier it would have been to have lived at the time of Jesus. You know, we accept the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus on the basis of solid eyewitness testimony. And in that sense, we believe in Jesus in the same way that we believe in George Washington or uh, Napoleon or anybody else. Uh, there's good testimony, good historical evidence that we can take seriously. But I always looked on those days as kind of the, the good old days when, you know, people saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead and they instantly had faith. But of course, last week, we learned that Jesus is busy sowing his message and doing miracles and doing teaching, and yet people are largely oblivious to his teaching. And in fact, in only one of four cases, did people really develop their faith and grow and mature. And then in this parable, Jesus talks about the good soil, as it were, and he says, yes, we have true believers, we have those who are committed followers of Jesus, but I've also got bad news. Ever since the beginning of the church, there have been people who do awful things and who disguise themselves as clergy or uh, faithful parishioners, whatever. But they belong to the evil one. So, there's nothing new in the age in which we live. And I don't know what, I found that kind of comforting. Um, if you're looking for the perfect church, it didn't exist even in Jesus' day. Even in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Judas was right there saying, I'm in, but he wasn't. So the life of the church is one that has challenges. So why endure discouraging circumstances in the kingdom at present, especially when, according to the parable of the sower, so few come to faith, and many in the church, as we learn from the parable of the wheat and tares, are duplicitous and downright evil. Because in the end... God and his people win. Scripture is very clear that evil uh, is uh, something that God is not ignoring. It is uh, a mixed bag. Um, I once heard a preacher say, how many of you would like God to eradicate evil instantly now? And people's hands put immediately shot up. And then the person said, well, how many of you would remain unscathed if he were to do that right now? And people began to look a little sheepish, right? Because there is uh, good and bad uh, in all of us. And the reason we're told that Jesus 
encourages his disciples and encourages us not to take matters into our own hands and to try to root out the bad guys is because in rooting out the bad guys, we're capable of making mistakes. One of the classic arguments against capital punishment is that if you realize you goofed when you executed an innocent person, not a whole lot you can do about it after the fact, right? So Jesus says, no, don't try to gather up the darnels, because when you do that, you're going to injure some of the wheat as well. And actually, one of the things about darnels or this, uh, this, this um, uh, weed, whatever it is, um, most people think it is this thing called tares or darnels, is that um, their, their, their roots get tangled up with the wheat. And so you, you can't actually extract the one without pulling up the other. They are, they're intertwined and they're intermingled. So in effect, you have to let them be in order to preserve the wheat. My friend Merle was telling me on the weekend that his solution to the weeds is to set the combine high because the weeds grow a little bit shorter than the combine. And so he's constantly adjusting the table of his, uh, of his combine to the height of the wheat. But inevitably, there are some of the weeds that come in. And um, he's, of course, gathering the wheat, which is a good idea, but he cannot help but gather some of the weeds along with the wheat. Jesus is worried that in gathering up the weeds and in destroying them, some of us will render harm or will suffer harm. So a few of the things that I learned from this, and I think I have them explained on page uh, four, are, by way of application, there are some attitudes. And when I wrote down, don't be, you see, I have two don't be's. And as I did, I had to chuckle. Because sermons that it consist of do be and don't be's are in themselves almost not biblical. Because, of course, the gospel is all about grace. And um, if a preacher tells you, you know, you should be a better person, you sort of go like, I'm here because I'm evil and I'm just without hope. I'm pleading for the mercy of God, which is available to us. So I have don't be in quotes. And I want to underscore, take hope in the future. So let me put it this way. Hang in when it comes to being a member of Christ the King or any other church which is reasonably doctrinally sound. Because it's never been ideal. And in the end, God and his people win. So we have reason to take hope in the future because of the glorious message of the coming again of Jesus, which has already been demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, that was the first fruits of the resurrection. It's a, a preliminary proof of the fact that we too shall be raised with him. And in the last day, when we are raised, there will be a separation between those who are righteous, those who have um, met their obligation and their commitment to Jesus, in our case, by putting our faith in him, and in his work on the cross, and then evil will be wiped out in ways that are terribly scary. So evil is a thing that needs to be taken seriously, and God takes it seriously, and we should as well. So let's not be nostalgic about the past. There's always been uh, trouble in the church. Let us not be discouraged in the, about the present, because although many turn away from the faith, there are some who embrace the faith, and as we have seen by the history of the church, 
uh, the kingdom flourishes when even a few among a crowd will turn in faith to Jesus. So attitudinally, uh, let's not be nostalgic. Let's not be discouraged about the present. Come next week, even though you might not have liked what somebody said in church, uh, somebody ended up being a bit of a schnook or something, that just comes with the territory. Um, if you're looking for the perfect church and you show up, you just wrecked it, right? Because it will no longer be the perfect church. And then in relation to evil, Jesus speaks explicitly about the reality of the devil, the reality of evil, and he speaks in the language of a fiery furnace and burning and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly, he's speaking in pictorial languages, but there's no mistaking that when push comes to shove and the end arrives, evil will be completely eradicated. And we can take hope in that if we are presently taking refuge in the cross of Jesus and in his work on the cross. So in relation to God, we can know that it's not his fault. Jesus said the enemy did this. Ever since the beginning of the story of the Bible, there was this enemy that showed up in the form of a serpent. And we're told frustratingly little about where he came from. But we're told for sure that he's real, for sure that evil has an influence in the world, but that it will one day be eradicated. And given the, rea the past uh, realities in our world since February, when um, uh, nations were at war in European countries again, uh, we don't need to look far and to imagine much to believe in the reality of evil. It's just unleashing. Um, and it's awful. It will end. It will be eradicated. But that's up to God, not up to us. And then know that despite appearances, God truly, truly cares for you. God doesn't sponsor the stuff that happens to us that is bad. And we know from the cross itself that Jesus takes ultimately seriously the reality of evil. If there was any setting aside the reality of evil and the need for personal holiness, surely God would not have allowed his son to die on the cross. That is God's admission of the need for something to be done about evil and the fact that it has to be dealt with. And it's also a message of grace in that Jesus, when he died on the cross, took the evil that we committed upon himself and took our place and paid the penalty for our evil and set us free and justified us by his grace. So it's helpful to remember that God cares. And then perhaps the main message of the text is that we must not take matters into our own hands in such a way as to inflict harm upon our evil enemies. I was interested to read earlier this week of St. Augustine, who was uh, probably the most, one of the four or five most influential theologians in the history of the church. He lived in the fourth century after the time of Constantine. And St. Augustine said, after witnessing Christianity come to the Roman Empire and after witnessing Christians persecuting um, and, um, you know, um, um, 
destroying heretics and the like, St. Augustine wrote very biographically that said, you know, when I read the scriptures, it was within my conscience simply to say that we must not do this. But I'm afraid that things are out of hand and that um, what is being done is being done. And it was deemed necessary or justifiable, but he couldn't justify it in the light of scripture. So this is not about division in the church, primarily, anyway. For some of you who are new to us, you might know that the Anglican Network in Canada about 12 years ago felt as though it could no longer walk in harmony with a parent denomination for many reasons, but one of them was that uh, bishops, the people who are in charge of doctrine, um, were um, compromising the faith to the point where uh, many were concerned that um, the faith was being compromised. And at that part, at that point, um, there was a decision on the part of those of us who were at the Anglican Network in Canada to walk apart. Um, there are still brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not us to decide who is and who isn't. And within our own midst, there are um, um, there's a mixture. But this is not about that kind of separation primarily. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said, don't do that because in separating the weeds from the wheat, you will harm the wheat. Um, there is uh, no physical harm um, coming in the midst of this separation as regrettable as it is. So let me end on this note. There are more and more challenges, it seems, to being uh, a, a faithful member of a church. There are lots of people who decide to walk uh, their spiritual walk, even with Jesus, on their own. And one of the things that you can say to yourself is, well, there's so much hypocrisy in the church, I really don't want to be any part of it. But friends, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not be part of the body of Christ. It's, uh, it's like, um, you know, cutting off your fingernail and letting it fall on the floor and then calling your dropped fingernail part of your body. I mean, it was, but as long as it's separate, it's, it's no longer part of your body. So this is an encouragement at the beginning of an academic year as we come to uh, face joys as well as trials in our life as a church to say, I'm in because that's God's will. I want to be with my people. And there are going to be some in our midst who are dubious, but I'm going to be patient, I'm going to have hope, and I'm going to hang in and remain a part of the church because that's the will of God and because in the end, God and his people win. Let me conclude with an illustration. A light illustration and a more sober illustration. The light illustration comes and is addressed to those of you who might only be having a few problems with friends at church or whatever. Sometimes if you're driving, you'll get down the highway and the sun will be shining in your eyes or there will be something that, uh, that keeps you from seeing the road in front of you. And a novice driver at that point could simply decide to panic and pull over um, or to stop and get rear-ended. But a wise driver knows that, well, uh, five seconds ago I was in my lane and if I don't change the steering wheel from left to right, uh, in five seconds, I'll be able to see again and I'll continue on the path. 
Some of you might be in a moment like that when you're sort of wondering about your relationship to Jesus and your relationship to the church. And the advice of Jesus in this parable, I think, is keep a firm hold on the wheel and it's going to get better. Steady the course, because in the end, you'll arrive at your destination. And for those of you who are going through much worse, there was another illustration that I thought of, and that is uh, when I was a, 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 a boy um, brought up in Alberta, um, my dad, who was a private pilot, rented a plane and flew to North Bay for our summer holiday. And he rented this airplane for a few weeks. Um, but when it came time to come home, the clouds had set in and his license would not allow him to fly. He had what's called a VFR, which means um, he wasn't allowed to fly where you can't see. So we had to hire somebody who had an instrument flight rating, an IFR, who could fly through clouds. And he flew us from um, North Bay to Sault Ste. Marie. Um, and then the pilot drove from Sault Ste. Marie back to North Bay. But here we were stuck on the ground, not able to fly. And um, as we got this instrument flight rated pilot, it just occurred to me that he was able to take off and fly into the clouds. We could see absolutely nothing around us. We didn't know whether we were on the ground, how high we were, whether we were gonna crash into a mountain. But he was able to read those instruments and to fly blind as it were, and help us arrive at our destination. Some of you might feel as though you are flying blind this afternoon, as though there's so much that's gone on in your life that makes your picture of the Christian life seem dark. And it makes you wonder whether it'll be a week or a month or years before you can see ground again as you look out the window. My friend, Jesus is saying that he is your instrument flight rated pilot. And that if you remain in your seat, and trust in his word, which are those instruments. That's the best thing you can do to stay on course. And one day, if only it's on your last day, the clouds will break and the sun will shine and you will be brought to your eternal reward. Keep a steady hand on the wheel. Don't be discouraged because in the end, God and God's people win. Amen.